Jason Jordan Van Trump with Farm Tank. Farm Tank is an organization I formed for individuals and business owners to learn the latest in innovation, execution, and motivation. I believe there's a huge demand for hearing how others have become successful in life. I'll be traveling the world talking to some of the most influential CEOs and founders to help everyone learn and be more successful in their near future. The agricultural community has been extremely grateful to me and my family, so I'd like to do the same for everyone else and share my insights with you. With that, coming to you live with Farm Tank, Jordan Van Trump. Hey everybody, and welcome to another edition of Farm Tank. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Howard Getson. Howard earned his bachelor's degree in psychology and philosophy from Duke University. He also received a master's degree in finance from Northwestern University and a law degree from Northwestern University, all by the age of 23. Howard also founded Intelligent Control in 1991, which was an Inc. 500 company, and won an IBM Locus Beacom Award for Best Business Application. Howard is now the president and CEO of an AI hedge fund called Capital Logics and serves on the advisory council of the Hastings Center. With that, I'd like to welcome Howard to the show. Hey, man. It's uh, great to be here. How are you doing? Doing good, doing good. How you been doing? I've been doing real well. Um, it's almost football season, so that makes me happy. It's uh, it, it's a way for me to look up away from my screen onto a different screen. Yep, that's uh, exactly what I was going to talk about at our first uh, question in the podcast. I know you're a big Cowboys fan and all. But uh, let's start this podcast off by talking about your seats at the AT&T Stadium. I actually got to go to the <laughs> Chiefs-Cowboys game last year with you and it was uh quite the experience do you think you could tell our listeners about how uh you got these tickets and uh the cool events you've been to and everything they're about well uh as i've gone through kind of adult life i figured out that the difference between men and boys uh are the prices of their toys and uh, uh a bunch of my friends have helicopters or yachts, but for me, uh, access to uh, professional football has always been an experience that I love and love to share. Uh, it's the closest thing I know to like superheroes. When when you get to go down on the field and see the players up close, and you go, "Holy cow! His arm is bigger than my leg." Um, it's just cool to watch the the faces. And what I figured out was uh, as business people get older and richer, it's harder for them to, I don't know, uh, experience life like a child. But but what I found out is it's better to spend money on experiences rather than things. Um, and so for me, this is a platform to share an experience with people, and it's it's just cool. So we have 10 seats right on the 50, and... Uh, if you've been to AT&T Stadium, it's, it's an amazing piece of architecture because it can transform from a stadium that holds 85,000 to a stadium that holds 125,000. It's like a transformer. Not only does the roof come down, but the sides open. And uh, as you might guess, they have a lot of parking, but there's only 100 slots, uh, 100 spaces under the stadium. And, and we have one of those, and it, it's fun to watch people's faces when we drive past the snipers with machine guns, go into the bowels of the stadium, through the end zone to the 50, 
you look up to the right and you can see the rolls of AstroTurf, all the different end zones for like Baylor, uh, UT Austin, um, TCU. But then we get out, we, we hand the keys to the valet, and when we walk out, we're on the 50-yard line walking into the stadium. You walk out onto the field and you see that giant expanse and grown-ups turn into little kids, and I just love it. Um, and then you were there, so we watched from the 50. And Jerry is really proud of his jumbotron. It's not fair to even call it that. It's the, the largest... HD screen anywhere in the world and his son says uh, oh wait dad isn't there another one just as big and then they leave it with silence and of course you got to ask where is it and they tell you it's on the other side of the field it goes from the 20 yard line all the way to the 20 yard line and it's 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 just something to see uh, and then after the game as you know we take our 10 people down onto the field and we get to to throw a ball around, take pictures on the star and uh, pretty much stay until we go. But it's, it's a ton of fun. And I spend a whole bunch of the year organizing who gets to be part of those trips. And each game there's 10 seats, but each game is like a different cocktail party. And I try to make sure I've got the right mix of people. Uh, it's just, it's a ton of fun. And, and frankly, it leads to business because I think that uh, you have to really enjoy the people you do business with, and it's a great way for me to figure out um, who's fun to be around, who's going to be a net ad, who's going to help create energy, who's going to have ideas, who's fun to play with. And at, at this stage of my career, that's important. I want to play with good people who move us forward. Tell, tell everybody about the food and all you can drink and all that stuff that comes with the tickets as well. Yeah. So Jerry Jones, uh, is an incredible business guy and the stadium itself costs like uh, 1.25 billion to build. And, uh, it turns out that he spent 1.8 billion on his headquarters and, I, I couldn't even imagine how he would do that or why he would do that. It, it turns out in the in the headquarters, he realized that people have so much brand loyalty to the Cowboys that they're willing to spend more for office space or other stuff that's linked to it. And so he created a hospitality arm of his business. And at the headquarters, so they have offices and stuff that you can rent, but they've also co-branded a hotel. They've co-branded a hospital. Um, there's all sorts of retail there. And then he has this private club. It's called the Cowboys Club. Um, <laughs> but there's a, a, a big initiation fee and a, a long time wait to get in. But this club is a top-tier country club-like experience where they've got top-tier food and alcohol, but it overlooks the practice fields. Um, you can watch the practice, but he gives the current players a membership to be there, uh, but he gives the Ring of Honor members 
a big discount where their food is half price, but they don't have to pay for the membership. And then he gives Hall of Famers free food and drink. So it turns out that you end up seeing Roger Staubach, Troy Aikman, Emmett Smith, Michael Irvin, uh, you know, a bunch of the, the players and people love being there. And Jerry has figured out that uh, this was something that a lot of clubs would love, and he formed a division of his company that makes those kinds of clubs in the stadium. And so uh, there's like it's the equivalent of a super nice first class lounge, and it's hidden in the bowels of the stadium, but it's top shelf food, drink. They've got people at carving stations carving meat off the bone. And when you're there, you know, I used to go to watch a football game, and now this experience is just uh, two hours before the game till two hours after the game, uh, <laughs> pretty much a full day of football. And it's part of the reason the Cowboys are now the highest-valued sports franchise in the world. They're worth $5 billion. They're worth more than you know, Man United Soccer and the other stuff. And part of it is because Jerry's now creating entities that the other NFL owners and, frankly, other sport owners are hiring him to sell suites, to do the ticketing, to do these clubs. So he's doing this kind of club in Minnesota. He's doing this kind of club in uh, L.A. He's doing this kind of club in Atlanta. He's doing it for the Yankees. Uh, but it's a great concept, and, and it makes the game even more fun. I'm uh, used to the old Kansas City football, little Bud Light and hot dogs, and when Howard's talking about uh, top shelf, he's not messing around. I'm ordering Basil Hayden whiskey and eating crab legs and getting prime rib carved off. It's uh, pretty Isn't crazy. that what football's all about? I, it is now. But, but uh, that's actually what business is about. It's about finding a way to excite and delight your customer. I totally agree. So uh, I'm wanting to ask about your college experience now. I know you uh, played track and football at Duke, received a master's in finance and a law degree from Northwestern. Can you uh, tell me a bit about all this experience that you did before you were 23 and what tools you gained from doing all this? So um, when I was in high school, um, I guess I started to take athletics uh, more seriously than a lot of people. I, I was undefeated in the shot put, state champion. Uh, I started varsity quarterback even as a sophomore. Um, and and I'm pretty sure if you could get back into the brain of a 16- or 17-year-old me, I was pretty sure that the the future would hold me playing NFL football. Um, and so when I, I had an opportunity to go to college, I was recruited by places like Clemson and the University of Miami, but also places like Harvard and Dartmouth. And I ended up kind of splitting the difference, and I went to Duke. Um, I had a bunch of visits to uh, different colleges, and I would come home and I would say, I could see myself going here. You know, I remember getting back from Dartmouth, and I had green beer, and there were co-ed bathrooms, and I, I was like, I, I really think I could see myself here. That was kind of cool. But when I went to Duke, um, I called my parents literally moments after I was there, and I said, I'm going to Duke. 
And they said, did they offer you a scholarship? I said, not yet, but I'm going. But, but they did, and I, uh, I loved it there. It was incredible. Um, it was love at first sight. And what I found is uh, when I got there, I thought that I was going to be an athlete who happened to go to school. But I was in classes with people who were brilliant. And the professors didn't bore me. It was cool. And so instead of focusing on athletics, and, and I still um, made all conference and track. I, I placed third in, in the conference meet. But I was competing against people like 100 pounds more than me or more. In fact, uh, there was a, a wrestler that you might have heard of called Tab Thacker, and he was easily 400 and some pounds. And he threw for NC State. He played football for them, too. Went on to the Olympics as a wrestler. But, uh, I mean, I, I'm 6'2", 240, and that's what I was in college. It's just distributed differently. Um, but what I found out is that athletics didn't give me that energy, that edge. I started to, to love my classes, and it and it turns out because I had taken enough AP classes in high school, uh, and I and I took a program abroad, I was able to graduate after two and a half years. And I thought about staying for eligibility, but I ended up uh, graduating early, and I couldn't decide whether to go to business or law school, and I applied to both. And so, like, I got into some really good law schools and some really good business schools. And I was going to try to decide um, which would I go to. And then I got into both at Northwestern. And I said, you know what? What if I do both? And it turns out I was able to graduate from that program in three years as well. And I didn't think about it as, as so fast. It was, it was just fun and easy for me. And I ran a business the whole time. When I was in college, I ran a, uh, a business where I sold stereo equipment and tapes. I was the guy on the quad selling tapes. Um, but then in, in business and law school, I had a business where I, I started a database consulting company. And, and this is back in the early 80s, so it wasn't like databases were common. But... Uh, I built custom databases for various local businesses. I remember one of my first was for a car alarm business, and I got paid by them giving me a car alarm. Um, but I loved it. it um, that was kind of my introduction to computers and processing. Then uh, I couldn't decide if I was going to be in business or a lawyer, and I, I had the idea that I would be a business lawyer. So I graduated uh, at 23, moved out to Dallas, and started practicing corporate securities law. And I had a computer. And back then, only secretaries typed. And, and I had a lot of people basically telling me that it looked bad for a lawyer to have a computer, but, but I loved it. And um, Pretty quickly, it became a competitive advantage. I started getting hired by firms like Lotus Development, uh, an Apple computer, to, they paid me my legal fee, but I gave speeches for them at places like Comdex, um, all these different information conferences. And by the time I was 27, 
I realized that uh, I envied my clients who were entrepreneurs, and um, I didn't really love my partners who were lawyers, and it kind of sort of made sense. Um, and so pretty quickly after that, I started my first real entrepreneurial endeavor, um, and it was a software company that was going to provide uh, technology and database type things for lawyers and law firms. And I thought this was going to be great. They'd hire me as co-counsel. The clients would pay for the software. It would be protected by attorney-client privilege. And uh, it turns out attorneys didn't really focus much about efficiency or effectiveness. They were going to work 40 hours a week, whether it was billed to one client or 20. Um, and pretty quickly, that business morphed into what, what turns out was artificial intelligence. But at the time, we didn't know it. I mean, uh, I certainly didn't do it on purpose. But I've been doing what looks like AI since 1991. And I sold that first company in 2000 for a pretty nice chunk of change. And pretty soon after, my, my father died. And I inherited his portfolio. And as I was looking at kind of the fact that I love trading and I had a pretty decent-sized portfolio, I started to think, wouldn't it be cool if we substituted the fear, the greed, the discretionary mistakes that humans bring to trading with, with kind of automated best practice? And in my brain, I, I kind of saw a tree diagram that said, if, if I could use AI to help figure out which asset classes to trade, which techniques to trade, how much risk to put on, which allocation strategy to use have to be better than kind of the way we're doing it now. And uh, well, I was right, but I was also wrong. Um, it's taken almost 20 years and $40 million to build the platform we use. But uh, boy, what we're doing now is the stuff that was science fiction back when I started. It's incredible. AI is now writing AI, and we're able to look at millions of different opportunities in real time all the time. Moving back, I know you kind of jumped around a little bit of what uh, you were doing, what you're doing now and all, but uh, I know you founded Intel Agent Control in 1991. I was wanting to know, what is your best business lesson you've learned while running Intel Agent that you would like to share with our listeners to uh, help them learn from your mistakes that you've made in the past? Well, um, that company is spelled the way you're saying it, but we pronounced it intelligent control, but it was based on intelligent agents, which is kind of the precursor to modern AI. And uh, let's see, the biggest lesson. I think if I look back at my experience I would say one of the most important business lessons that I learned was that you have to understand what you want and ask for what you want and help people give it to you. Um, so much of what I see in business is people telling me what they don't want. I'll say, so, what do you want? And they're like, well, I don't want. I'm like, no, 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 that wasn't the question. And really, I, I think there's a, a really important point there. And it's be clear about what the main thing is. Focus on what you really, truly want 
let people know what it is and help them give it to you, and you're likely to get it. I'll tell you another, and it doesn't sound like it's related, but it, it, I think it really is, is that I found that 10 times better is often easier to achieve than 10% better. And the reason is that if you're going for a 10% change, you're bringing the past forward and you're trying to figure out if this is how we did things, what things can I adjust, a different button to push, a different lever to pull, a different way of, you know, but you're pulling all the past forward. And there's a difference between change and transformation. And transformation is kind of committing to a result, even if you don't know how you're going to get it, and being willing to find more ways to win. And so I often find that I think about a base idea, and then I say, what would the 10 times version of that be? And I start planning, how would I go about achieving the 10-time version and oftentimes that 10%, that, that first incremental improvement happens so fast because you're thinking about different ways of looking at the problem or different ways of creating a solution or just simply finding more ways to win. I think that's a lot of good advice and uh, something people not just use in business but they can use in life as well. Um, but I heard that you're part of all these exclusive groups over the past few years, uh, things like the Entrepreneurs Club that you're in, the Mastermind <laughs> Sessions you're a part of, the Genius Network deal. Uh, could you just tell our listeners a little bit about all these groups? Well, one of my around? fundamental beliefs, one of my fundamental beliefs is that you're either growing or dying. Um, and, and so I'm committed to growth and, uh, I think, you know, one of the things I heard many years ago that sounded kind of crazy when I heard it, but it's true, is you can predict a whole lot about your life by the five people you spend the most time with. And if you really want to change your life, you got to change your peer group. And so for me, you know, I said you're either um, growing or dying. But learning and growing is huge. Standing still is moving backwards. For, for me, it's about raising the standard, getting comfortable with being uncomfortable, seeing the bigger picture, creating breakthroughs. There's always a best next step, and my job is to find it. And the way I do that is by surrounding myself with people who think differently. Um, I'm really good at thinking the way I think. And it feels like I'm thinking. It feels like I'm responding fresh to new ideas. But the truth is I can only think kind of in a rut based on the way I think. So I expose myself to all these other people as a catalyst and as a way to look outside that rut. And, again, you, you've heard me use the phrase, find more ways to win, but uh, – it, it's fundamental to the way I do business. And so I'm constantly looking for cool new peer groups. Um, for those of you that are entrepreneurs or entrepreneurial, EO, the Entrepreneurial Organization, it's EO.org is the website, is an incredible group of entrepreneurs um, worldwide, but they have local chapters in most cities. Uh, another group like that is Vistage, V-I-S-T-A-G-E. 
Um, two of the groups that I've really appreciated that are uh, a little bit different than that. One is called Strategic Coach. That's run by Dan Sullivan and Babs Sullivan. Uh, fantastic quarterly program for thinking about your di- business differently. So much of my entrepreneurial DNA can be traced back to Dan and Babs and Strategic Coach. It's just an incredible uh, program. And then uh, an- another group that's kind of interesting is Genius Network, which is run by a guy named uh, Joe Polish. And it, it's a bunch of really f- free thinkers and entrepreneurs. And uh, I, I love being in meetings with people from all these different industries. And a lot of times, you know, I want to be with people who are doing well in my industry. But so much of my industry thinks the way that I already know how to think. I, I love being in groups with high performers in different industries because I'll get a fresh insight or a new way of looking at something. And uh, oftentimes it only takes one idea to, to pay for everything. So uh, I highly recommend stuff like that. Frankly, it's why I agreed to start spending time with uh, you and your dad talking about stuff farm-related. How would farm-related stuff relate to me, but it turns out I've met an incredible group of people through that, and um, I think good things happen when you're in motion, so you got to go do stuff. That's something I'm going to have to connect with you with after our show, and uh, I'm going to get hooked up with some of those clubs and whatnot. I need to get out there and definitely start thinking different. Uh, what are some of the best people that you've met going to the events like these? Well, uh uh, it's going to sound patronizing, but your dad's amazing. I love the way he thinks. Um, very impressive. Andy Daniels is another example of somebody, uh, and, and obviously Carter uh, from iSelect. Those are those are great people. Um, but if you're talking a different level, kind of people that, that people would see on stage, um, Peter Diamandis uh, from SpaceX and the X Prize um, is fascinating. I, I love his ideas on abundance. Ray Kurzweil, uh, who does the Singularity, is fascinating. Originally, he invented the synthesizer, and he's now uh, one of the, the chief technology people at Google. But he's really talking about where man and machine merge. Um, Elon Musk is is an incredible source of innovation, as as is Jeff Bezos. I mean, we live in the golden age of AI, machine learning in the future, and I'm just fascinated by how many great thinkers there are. Uh, there's another guy that uh, I've enjoyed reading and following. He's, he's, uh, he's actually an investor in our company, but it, his name's Dave Asprey, and he founded Bulletproof, um, <laughs> which many people think of as a coffee company, but it, it's so much more than that. Um, he's just a, a great thinker. He's interested in biohacking, and I'm always interested in performance improvements, um, and so I read his book, which is called Headstrong, 
Um, and it's about finding ways to activate untapped, untapped brain energy to work smarter and think faster. And I was like, well, everybody says that. But it turns out there's supplements you can take and tricks that help you process faster. And I'll tell you, in in my business, um, profitable insights is where it's at. And so I want to be able to not only use better technology from a machine standpoint, but I want to use better technology in terms of helping me perform my best and be able to keep up with the rigors of what I do on a, a daily basis and and to think clearly and well. So uh, th- there's a lot of thought that goes into how to have the clarity, the energy, and and the uh, ability to be a peak performer. Howard and I actually talked about the Bulletproof before we jumped on the podcast, and that's definitely a book I'm going to have to go out and get it, read, learn more about. One more question for you, Howard, on uh, meeting people. Who's someone you've uh, always wanted to meet and learn from that you'd like to in the future? Hmm. I've I've really been fortunate. Um, uh, I was on the global board of EO, the Entrepreneur Organization, and uh, I've given speeches in hundreds and hundreds of cities. I I got invited to give a speech uh, at the Kremlin. Uh, uh, I've given speeches at the White House. I've uh, I've met presidents and prime ministers and heads of intelligence agencies and you know I, I know people like Peter Diamandis and um, I will tell you that almost everybody's accessible if you want you just have to figure out um, what you really want what you really want from them and how you can be helpful um, Somebody that I want to spend more time i would I would love to meet Elon Musk one on one and spend real time talking about his sense of the future Jeff Bezos too um, those are people who are terraforming not only the planet but our future and I think a lot of our future is not going to be on planet um, uh, i I'll tell you, uh, some of the other people that uh, I've spent time with who are really impressive is somebody like Tony Robbins. And a lot of people look at him and think of a movie like Shallow Hal. But um, there are people who have superior capabilities and, and levels of charisma that are different than normal people. If you met President Bill Clinton, even people who didn't like him but who met him, acknowledge that there's just something different about meeting him. You meet him and it's like the room is different. Um, the Dalai Lama is like that. Tony Robbins is like that. Um, every time that I've spent time with Tony, um, I just come away going, wow. And I think it's really important to expose yourself to people like that. So you recognize what's possible. Um, and you pull yourself higher up that food chain. You definitely have met a lot of good people, it seems like, and I would say getting a one-on-one with Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos would, I would imagine, would be life-changing and uh, would definitely transform how successful you are in the future. 
You know, I'll add one thing to that. I, I actually believe energy is one of the most important things to measure. And by energy, I actually mean like, is it cleansing or clogging? Is it lifting you up or making you weak? If there are things you think about that make you fuzzy headed and slow, stop thinking about them. It's not your path. But when you find something that lights you up and makes you more who you want to be, then you got to find a way to spend more resources, more time, money, energy, focus on that thing to lift you up. I've never uh, thought of anything like that, and it wasn't a question I had for you, but definitely uh, touched me a little, and I think I could take that advice personally. But in my podcast, yeah. I like to shift gears a little bit and really dive into uh, who you are outside of the work life. So I know you travel a lot, and I heard you're in some type of group for uh, traveling so many miles. Uh, what exactly group is this? Uh, divorced fathers know that's a joke. Um, um, I, but I've, I've flown, uh, over 5 million miles and, uh, I, I actually believe that it's really important to do business with people one-on-one, especially in the age of the internet and so much stuff happening online. When I want to have a good conversation with somebody, I get on a plane and I show up and I like belly to belly, eye to eye. I think it's important. Um, You know, it's funny. So much of what I do is related to AI, machine learning, supercomputers. But the heart of AI is still in a human. Humans are still important. Same same is true for business. Um, So I don't travel the way a lot of people do where, you know, I work nine to five and then plan to take a vacation one or two times a year. Travel is part of my week. Um, I've already made over 70 trips this far this year, and uh, when I when I made that count, it was still August. Um, I'll probably fly 200,000 miles this year, uh, and for me, it's it's almost like a competitive athlete where traveling's hard on the body, and so uh, it's important to have the right kind of diet. Uh, supplement schedule, but also sleep schedule. Uh, monitoring sleep is really important. And then every place I go, I try to make sure that I, I mix business and pleasure. Uh, so I've got an assistant, and I know you and your dad know my assistant, but uh, part of her job is to schedule me uh, full. And so um, if I'm flying to Kansas City, to, to give a talk with you, then when I'm at the Admirals Club, she has a list of people for me to call. And when I get to that city, I meet with people who I haven't seen, and I, I fill my breakfast, my lunch, my dinner, uh, my meeting time, the free, I mean, uh, we, we totally fill it. And if there's no room to fill it, then I fill it with a city tour or go into a museum. Um, <laughs> I recently went to Bangkok. And I had really important business meetings, but I also got to be in Bangkok, and I, I had some amazing cultural experiences. And I talked about energy. So these are things that light me up and fill me up and make me more who I am. And if all I did was travel to do business, then I would be a dull boy, and it would be less likely that people wanted to spend time. So uh, the world is my playground, and I am happy to be anywhere. Where do the uh, 
best places that you've traveled or best events you've been to? I'll tell you. For an American, um, you know, you're used to what you see here. Uh, one of the the coolest places that I've been is Bali, Indonesia. Uh, I gave a speech there April 16th, 2004. Uh, and I remember that date because after that speech, I got off stage and some little girl comes up to me and says, do you want to have lunch? And I said, uh, oh, sorry, I just gave a speech. I have to sit at the main table. And she said, yeah, with me, I run the conference. Turns out uh, I've now been married to Jennifer for uh, more than 10 years. And uh, that was an important trip for me. But it wasn't just because I met my future wife. It's because Bali was jaw-droppingly pretty. And it was so different than America that every time I looked somewhere, I wanted to take my camera out and take a picture. And I've now been back dozens of times. And every time I go back, it's the same. It's, it's amazing. Um, so I highly recommend that. Um, in Europe, I'd say Prague is a cool place to go. It still has a little bit of Eastern Europe left in it, but there's some modern trappings, uh, but it's beautiful. Um, I, I recently have started spending more time outside. And, you know, for you, you probably think that's normal. But for me, Four Seasons was a hotel chain, not something that happened outside. Um, but I've spent some time recently in Wyoming and Montana and Idaho and, and recently Maine. Um, I even went to Saskatchewan this year. Um those are very different places for me. I'm, I'm just exploring different things. But uh, for an American who's looking for something different, Asia is a terrific place. It's one of the uh, fastest-growing economies on the planet. Uh, the middle cr- class is growing so fast there. There's going to be amazing opportunities, and it's just fascinating to see the differences in culture um, and people. Um, but uh, terrific opportunity if I were you, uh, Asia. <laughs> I'll have to uh, check it out for sure. There's probably not much of a bucket list for you left traveling-wise, but uh, do you have anything still on your bucket list to travel to? Huh, I hadn't thought of that. Uh, I've seen the Great Wall of China. Um I've been to Russia. I've been to Israel. Israel's really cool. Um, it, Israel's actually worth a trip. It doesn't matter if you're Christian, Jewish, Muslim, or something else. It's it's uh, fascinating to think that someplace so small is so meaningful in so many different cultures. Um, it's you know it's a concept of holy space or sacred space it's it's uh archaeological digs in a way of seeing back in time it's the effect of war on children it's some of the coolest new technologies on the planet um and there's an existential threat just being there uh cer- certainly an interesting trip and and someplace that i'm probably going to go back to in the next year or two um, bucket list 
I want to go off planet. <laughs> I want to do space tourism. I think mining asteroids is going to be huge. I think figuring out how to get our uh, population beginning to go off planet so that it's capable of, of expanding beyond just Earth is something that's going to happen within your lifetime. I mean, certainly the beginnings are happening in my lifetime, but, but my guess is your children will live in a very different world than I did. Um, and I would, I would love to see space. Yeah, space would uh, definitely be crazy. I'm just uh, trying to get over to Europe right now. Nothing that crazy. Well, yet, I think but, that's uh, easier to do. Is. I think so. Yeah. So let's talk about one of your crazier trips I've heard about. I uh, heard you went down to Colombia to meet with someone who worked with Pablo Escobar. Can you uh, please oh. share with us uh, why someone like you would want to go do that? Well, I told you that people should pay for experiences, not things. And uh, a, a group of CEOs got together to do a buddy trip. And we ended up uh, renting Pablo Escobar's old house. And uh, his general, his chief assassin, assassin, was a guy whose name was Popeye. Uh, not Popeye the sailor. It's like Popeye or whatever. But, but he was literally the chief assassin under Pablo Escobar. And uh, we hired him to come visit us and teach us how to run a cartel. And none of us. Uh, are into drugs nor really want to have a cartel. But as business owners, it's always interesting to hear different perspectives. And it was fascinating um, to listen to this person talk. He did not see himself as a killer. He saw himself as a soldier. He saw himself as a loyal general who took care of his people fighting an honorable fight. Um, sure, he killed thousands of people. Um, but wasn't it amazing that in a country so small um, and with people with so little resources that they could mobilize such a loyal force? And he claims that it was done with love rather than fear and uh, an understanding of human nature. And frankly, it was uh, it was certainly a, a week well spent. Uh, I learned a lot of stuff. In fact, I'm I'm looking at a poster. Um, that I put up on my wall that has some pictures of of that trip. Um, yeah, you never know where you're going to get insight, but uh, that was a cool one. Have you been on any crazier trips than that, or is that as crazy as it gets? I've been on some crazy. I've been on some crazy trips. Um, yeah, I was in Russia, um, and I, I got to go as an ambassador, an entrepreneurial ambassador from America, because I was on the global board of EO. And uh, when I got there, I noticed that uh, some guy at the hotel was watching me. And then later I was at a restaurant, and he looked like he was a busboy. And then later I was somewhere else, and he was there. Uh, I was at a bar, and we were drinking vodka with some locals. And this guy comes up behind me and he says, I know you know who I am. Don't be afraid of me. It's your friends trying to kill you. And I looked at him. He says, with the vodka, I'm joking. Um, but I had my own private uh, observer, <laughs> uh, courtesy of the Russian government back then. Uh, as I was leaving, um, a couple days later, 
as you check out of the hotel, you have to show your passport. And I didn't know that. And I didn't have my passport out and I couldn't find it. And I'm looking through my suitcases and the line behind me is not happy. And all of a sudden somebody goes up to the front desk clerk and whispers in their ear. And the front desk clerk turns to me and says, check the jacket pocket in your blue blazer. And it turns out that's where my passport was. And of course they knew. Um, (laughs) <laughs> but that was a fun trip. Pretty crazy. Yeah, that's that sounds pretty fun. I think we could talk about travel all day, but uh, I know you're crunched on time, so let's jump into uh, what you're doing now. You're the uh, CEO of Capital Logics. I know my dad's friends are invested in the company, but could you provide our listeners with an easy-to-understand description of the insane technology taking place over there? Well, let's just talk in general first. Uh, it, it's the golden age of AI and machine learning, and my guess is that my children's children will say, oh, you know, he made his money because he was in the right place at the right time. But everybody listening to this is in that same right place and right time. Um, the level of technology and capability available to us right now is awe-inspiring. Uh, I've been working on this. I've been working on AI since 91, but I've been working on this um, (laughs) directly since at least 2000. And so many of the things that I thought could be possible weren't until the technology got to this point. But we're now at a point where (laughs) it looks like magic. Um, We're able to look at millions of algorithms in real time, and because we use um, really high-performance computing systems that are a thousand times faster than your typical PC, you know, if, if if my laptop has eight gigs of RAM, you know, one of these computers might have eight thousand gigs of RAM, but is also using much faster processors and GPUs and uh, crazy technology. It's so fast that we had to invent a a new form of technology to get data to that server and from that server. And so, you know, we combine things like massive parallel processing with high-performance computing. And um, (laughs) ultimately, uh, it's an embarrassment of technology riches, but it doesn't do anything if you don't know what to do with it. So, Uh, In short, we run a hedge fund whose primary purpose is to make money trading financial markets, but instead of predicting those markets, we're using AI and computing power to interrogate the various techniques that we use and figure out which is most likely in phase right now. So again, instead of predicting markets, we're figuring out how to momentum trade technique. Um, and th- there's a difference between guessing and knowing, and knowing is more profitable. So um, we no longer think things like, oh, I, I think gold is going to go up. Instead, we're figuring out, I trust this technique, and we'll put money in that technique. And then that technique may decide to trade a certain market or a certain time frame. We don't care. 
it's it's the fact that the technique is making money rather than the underlying market is doing something and it's it's fundamentally different but the point is is uh it's still a form of speculating for profit obviously um as more people start to use technology the trading game is changing back in the 80s or early 90s um trend following made a lot of money and it's because they were using certain analytic techniques to have an information advantage um, they knew something that something was trending while other people were guessing um, i remember when statistical arbitrage got press and people started to say oh my gosh, this is you know, a guaranteed way to make money, but it got harder and harder as more people did it because those edges decayed faster. Same thing happened with high-frequency trading. Um, it gets harder and harder to exercise what's, what's called execution alpha. And, and my sense is that uh, AI and machine learning is no different from those things in the sense that as more and more people do it, the edges will decay faster than ever but it's the people who understand how to use the hardware who really understand math, statistics, and, and uh, the testing process, figure out a way to filter the almost paralyzing amount of data that's now available to us. Uh, in the old days, people were looking for more information to make choices. But right now, there's so much information that it's hard to figure out which one is relevant or helpful. And, and I call it alpha by avoidance. Alpha is the uh, excess return a manager makes because of skill rather than risk. And to me, alpha by avoidance is this concept that says, if you can hide bad choices from yourself, meaning certain markets not to trade, certain techniques not to use, um, when not to take on too much risk, then what's left, even if you guess randomly, has a higher probability of winning. At least that's the idea. Um, and we're simply using massive computing power and many years of experience uh, to process data in a way that says, uh, here's where we think the game is going to be won and lost. I want to focus my CPU cycles and my attention on that. I don't know if that helps, but uh, ultimately uh, our company has three divisions. There's a fund management division, there's a data science division, and there's a licensing division. And publicly, I guess, I want people to know about Capital Logics, which is the data science division. My sense is you'll see us buy an, a number of companies under that name. But we use a lot of the techniques and the technologies that we invent there uh, to trade for our account in the fund management business. And uh, it, it's an interesting time to be in that space. It definitely is. I agree. I believe uh, trading... AI is definitely where trading's going. You're throwing around a little lingo in there. I think some people might have not understood. So, I mean, I know you're on the floor in New York before, and I just uh, maybe this could better help them understand a little bit about AI trading and what it's all about. Maybe talk about 
how you've seen trading change over the past 10 years. Like an average stock has held like what, 23 seconds now you said? Yeah. So uh, when I first started paying attention to markets, um, if, if somebody tried to depict the stock market in a movie or TV, you'd see tons of traders in a pit screaming at each other as they bought and sold. And if you walked into one of those pits now, you'd see a couple guys sitting in chairs with computers. Um, <laughs> they still go to the pit, but ultimately, 99% of trading is now electronic. Probably 70% of trading is algorithmic. Um, and, and frankly, a whole lot of the algorithms are still pretty dumb. Um, but there are some people who, who have gotten beyond that, and it's it's not about dumb algorithms. It's about really smart algorithms and really smart people who know when to use them. But the game has changed dramatically, and, and part of it is because trading's become so much shorter term. Um, yeah, I, I told you that the average holding time for a New York Stock Exchange stock is now like 21 seconds. Um, it, and if you think about it, when I was born, you know, my father bought me some stock. I probably still have that in certificate form. Um, stock used to be something you bought and held. Um, but so much of trading is now about uh, execution alpha. That's not how we trade. Uh, I'd say um, 70% of our trades are still held for days or weeks. Um well, we're looking for something different. Um, but but the game has changed. The players have changed. And what you have to do to win has changed. Um, and the thing is, is that I think the things that work will work for shorter and shorter periods of time. So it's always about figuring out how to switch into what's working. And that used to be markets, but now it's techniques. Um in the old days, you paid attention to markets because that's what you traded. But if 90% of trading is electronic and 70% is algorithmic, then I don't care what the market did. I care whether my algorithm bought or sold or did something. So there's a whole new level of uh, data analytics and the ability to, to recognize what's working or how it's working or what's profitable and what's not. Uh, and it just means that the fundamental rules of trading have changed, and a whole lot of the people who are the masters of the universe who who really understood the business may still have money, they may still have standing, they may still understand the business, but they don't have an edge because that's not how markets work anymore. And uh, frankly, I think it's going to change faster and faster. Yeah, I think that explanation will definitely help people understand where trading's going now and probably in the next five years it's going to be totally different even to you what are the advantages and disadvantages of ai trading exactly besides saying um, just buying and holding the stock so what i would say is people have fear and greed and make discretionary mistakes and the goal of the trading plan was to identify what best practices and to follow it. With automation, you can actually do what you said you're going to do the way you said you're going to do it. And with data scientists and, and the new level of uh, analytic processing, 
you can test things in an academically rigorous way to figure out what your real expectancy is. Um, and, and we use a technique we call a real-time expectancy score, where we're, we're looking at all the different opportunities that we have, and we sort them based on how much money do we think we'll make in the next day using this technique or that technique, or how much money do we think we'd make in the next hour using this technique or that technique. And it's a way to create fair comparisons, but it's really leveraging what technology does best, which is to allow you to sort and sift these things in real time so I can pay attention to what that best opportunity is or my weakest holding is. And in a sense, um, I guess to end the podcast, one of the, the best ways to describe this is a good system beats a great person again and again and again. Um, and if you can find a way to create a great system, um, then you have a sustainable competitive advantage. And I think that's what AI is giving a whole new class of traders. Um, and for the people who are listening, it just means that it's time to pay attention to what your options and opportunities are to take advantage of these new technologies and and uh, asymmetric information advantages are. It is the golden age, and there's a ton of opportunities to learn something new and have fun. And uh, I, I still think that speculation and trading is going to be a great business for the next 25 years. It's just the way you do it will change. And you as a human are probably way less likely to do it than having technology or algorithms do it in your place. Yeah. Anyway, Jordan, this was a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. You got uh, time for I'd one more question for you? I'd love to do it again. You? You uh, one, one more, more quick one. Real quick. Yeah. All right. So in my uh, podcast, I just love to tell our listeners one piece of advice or life lesson that's had the most impact on Howard Getson. There's a difference between good and great. And that difference is infinitesimal. And uh, I, I really think that <laughs> uh, you've got to find not only what you're excellent at, but what gives you energy. Because every day you fight the good fight and you compete with everybody else who fights that good fight. And it's only if you have the energy and the willingness to do a little bit extra that you start to extend that edge. And there's a fine line between uh, genius and crazy. And if somebody were to have seen what I undertook 20-some years ago, they'd say you'd never achieve it. But as long as you're moving in the right direction and you don't give up, you're guaranteed to ultimately meet your goal. It's what inevitability is. But ultimately, it comes down to doing that little bit extra again and again and again. And as long as you've got the energy to do it and you're doing something you love, it doesn't feel like work, but you ultimately, you don't compete with other people. You end up competing against yourself to set new standards and create new opportunities. And I hope that helps. I think that does, Howard, and that's some good advice. I think that's all the time we have today, and I'm very blessed to have Howard on the show, and I thank him very much for sharing all his insight with us. Remember to follow Farm Tank on Facebook. Twitter, and Instagram. You can see me on Twitter at FarmTank, and you can find me on Instagram at FarmTank as well. I want to encourage everybody listening out there, 
to go to my website, www.farmtank.com, to subscribe to my material, to where it gets sent straight to your email inbox every time something new comes out. And that's going to conclude our Farm Tank session today.